Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Uh, we appreciate your prayers uh, while the leadership was gone at the Shepherds Conference this week. Um, massively encouraging, massively important. And uh, because of that, my heart is full. And I pray that the fullness in my own soul would spill over even this morning. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worth your love, your treasuring, your cherishing, your praise. Jesus is worthy. And I pray that you would see him again this morning as worthy as he truly is. Your eyes might be open to the glory of Jesus Christ. This passage deals with a crowd that doesn't understand, the Pharisees that don't believe. And Jesus all the while saying, anyone who would see me for who I am can come. Anyone can come. And you will be satisfied beyond, beyond your wildest dreams. So my prayer this morning for us as a church and for you individually is that you would be reminded yet again, if you are saved, you'd be reminded yet again of what it looks like to drink from Jesus and to drink from that fountain and to never let up. To see, even in your own life, the way that you have gone after lesser gods and to turn back to Jesus now. And My prayer for you, if you are not saved, if you have never tasted of the fountain of living water, that this morning you would have just one drop of the fountain of living water, and that would change your life for all of eternity. That you would see Jesus clearly for who he is and not be confused or unbelieving uh, like the people that we'll, we will see in this text. I just want to remind you, John chapter 7 is uh, seven months removed from the feeding of the 5,000, and we are seven months until the last Passover uh, that Jesus will go to and be murdered at. So seven months after the feeding of the 5,000, John chapter 7 is taking place. Seven months after John chapter 7, he will be crucified. So we're getting close, but there's still a lot left to study and to cover in this gospel. Let's read this section this morning. It's a long section. We'll see if we can get through it. I don't know if we will be able to, but I want to just read it because it's two days stuck together with the same theme running throughout. So start in verse 25, John chapter 7, verse 25. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him. And no man laid his hands on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer, I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. 
And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit has was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendant of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but again, no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? And they answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Father, bless our time this morning. Your word is rich. There are depths to these verses that we will never even know until we get to heaven. And even then we will study them and learn and grow. But this morning we want to see Jesus and we want to see his offer. And we want to receive him Not just for salvation, not just in a sense of being freed from the penalty of our sin, though that is a great privilege, that is a great blessing that has been bestowed upon us, not based on anything that we have done. But God, we want to come to Jesus for satisfaction, for sanctification for the continuing of our faith as we grow in likeness to Christ, that we would love him the way that we ought and find our satisfaction in him, knowing how much he loves us. We pray that your spirit would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, and we, like Samuel so long ago, say, Speak, Lord, your servant listens. Speak to us now. We are listening. We pray it in your name. Amen. For our time this morning, we are going to divide these verses up into four sections, just four sections. We have the confusion of the crowd, which you saw. We have the unbelief of the Pharisees, which, again, you've seen all of these. We have the offer of Jesus, and we have the responses to his offer. So we might get through all of them. I'm wondering, I think we'll probably just get through three, and we'll finish it up next week. 
But first we see the confusion of the crowd. Jesus is in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles teaching a very divided crowd. Some think that he is who he claims to be. Others don't believe him so much so that they want him arrested and killed. So verse 25, after Jesus spoke, and ultimately he said, you don't keep the law, you can't keep the law in any way, you're breakers of the law, and you need a savior, people are going to say, verse 25, this is the guy that they're trying to kill? Is this the one? Why are they trying to kill him when he's speaking? Verse 26, publicly. They're not coming to say anything to him, they're just letting him speak. They're not... They're not answering what he's saying. They're not saying you're wrong based on what the Bible says. They're just saying we don't like you. And we know why they don't like him, because the Pharisees loved the praises of man, and they gained the praises of man by their adherence to the man-made laws that they had set up. And Jesus just told them, you can't keep those laws. You don't actually keep those laws. You're experts in breaking the law, not in keeping it. So they want him dead, but they're not going to talk to him about it. And the people, the crowds, are confused by that. They're not debating. They're not discussing. The rulers don't really know that this is the Christ, do they? What do the rulers think about this man? How are we to think about this man? By the way, Jesus is going to use the same argument during Passion Week. When he is tried, they're going to bring him uh, before witnesses, and they're going to ask him, what did you do? What did you teach? What did you say? And Jesus is going to say, didn't I speak all these things in public? I said everything. Go ask the crowd. They know what I said. And the Pharisees will not respond to him because they can't. Nobody can respond to the word of God if they're trying to fight against it. Verse 27, the crowd says, we know where this man came from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is coming from. This is a confusion. This is a misinterpretation based on Isaiah 53, 8 and Malachi 3, 1, passages that the religious leaders took and said, when the Messiah comes, he's just going to kind of poof appear. Nobody's going to know where he comes from. So they say, we know where he came from. We know he's a man. He's from Galilee. He's hanging out in Galilee and Nazareth. So we know where he came from. He can't be the Messiah. So there are some saying he can't be. There are some saying maybe he is. I don't know who this guy is. And then in verse 31, some are going to say, no, he is who he claims to be. Verse 28, Jesus is going to cry out in the temple. The word cry out, it's the uh, second loudest Greek word for yelling. Uh, There's one higher than this. There's one louder than this. And it's used of Jesus only once. And it's when he cried out on the cross from the cross. But here he's going to cry out loudly in the temple. As all these festivities are going on, he's going to cry out and he's going to say, you both know me and know where I am from. And yet you don't know me, and you don't know where I'm from. You know me, but you don't. You, you know who I am, you know what I'm doing, you know where I'm from, you know all these things about me, but you don't really know. But you do know. Nobody can do these works, Nicodemus said in John 3. Nobody can do these works unless he's sent from God. All Jesus keeps proclaiming is, I've been sent by God. And they go, mm, you're just a man from Galilee. So this is irony to say, you know me. You don't know me, but you do really know who I am. You know me physically. You know that I came from Galilee. You know that I'm up there in Nazareth. You know that I uh, based my mission out of Capernaum. You know me, but you don't know that I've been sent by God. You're not believing that. But oh, if you could see 
You, you know that. There's evidence of that. I haven't come for myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you don't know. So you can't know me because you don't know the Father. If you knew the Father, you would know me. And if you know me, you would know the Father. But you don't know the Father, so you don't know me. I know him, verse 29, because I am from him and he sent me. And because of those words, because Jesus says, I am from him and sent by him, he's claiming to be God yet again, eternally existent, sent from heaven. And because of of those words, verse 30, people are seeking to seize him. Realize this. The words of Jesus got him killed. Remember the words. It's not the works. It's not the works. It's the words of Jesus that got him killed. They made him very unpopular. His works made him very popular, but his words made him very unpopular. And know that as you and I are ambassadors of Jesus Christ, the words of Jesus that are in our mouth that we are saying will make us unpopular too. No one is greater than his master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you, Jesus said. So we will be unpopular. We will be hated for what we say as we speak. But take comfort in number one, so is your master. And then take comfort in number two in the fact that verse 31, some will believe. But many of the crowd believed in him. They're saying, this has to be the Christ because look at everything that he's doing. And all of these signs that John uses in John uh, chapter 20 to say all of these signs are going to prove that he is the Christ and to believe in him based on the signs that point you to the fact that he is sent by God. They are picking up on those signs and they're saying that's proving that he is the Messiah. So as we speak, even as Jesus spoke and a lot of people thought that he was wrong and tried to kill him for his words. We will speak and people will think we are wrong. We are very unpopular people to believe the Bible through and through, to believe that there is a literal six-day creation, that right there, just we're crazy in the eyes of the world. But if we are faithful to preach the message of Jesus, people will be saved. They will. They will. The confusion of the crowd. This is my question. Why are they confused? I believe they're confused because of the religious leaders. The religious leaders, their job was to shepherd these people and help them identify who the Messiah was. And they're doing that all wrong. There's a a saying for preachers, um, a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the congregation. If I kind of understand something and and I preach on it, you're not going to understand it because I don't really. I would say for the religious leaders, Unbelief in the pulpit brings death in the congregation. These religious leaders are preaching a message of unbelief. They do not believe Jesus is who he claims to be. And because of that, many do not believe in him. Many do not believe in him. So, we need pastors, number one, that know Jesus, that love Jesus, that make him known. And number two, we need to be faithful to proclaim the message of Jesus, even if it makes us unpopular, even if it gets us killed, because we know that God will use it to save some. God will use it to save some. That's the confusion in the crowd. It stems from the unbelief of the Pharisees, and that's point number two, and I believe that's why John goes where he goes. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. So they want to take him and to bring him out. But um, verse 
30, he's not going to be able to be taken away because his time hasn't come yet. He's in complete control. His hour hasn't come yet. So, verse 33, Jesus says, and I love how he brings this to light. You're trying to seize me, but I'm not going to go now. I'm going to go later. I have my own timetable, and you can't change my timetable. I know when I'm going to give myself up. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I know when I'm going to give myself up, and it's not now. So, verse 33, for a little while longer, I'm going to be with you. You're going to try and seize me and kill me today? No, for a little while longer, I'm still going to be here. Then I'm going to go to him who sent me. So that's God the Father. They know that that's what he's saying. He says, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Physically, at a temporal level, that's obviously saying he's going to go to heaven and they can't find him there because he's up in heaven. Spiritually, they're going to be unable to get to him because of their unbelief. And we see their unbelief highlighted in verse 35 as they mock him. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Is he going to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? Is he going to teach Greeks? Is he going to go far away and we're not not going to be able to find him in a crowd? Or we're not even going to go because it's in the Gentile land? What is this statement that he says, verse 36, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. What, What does that mean? They're mocking him. They're trying to undermine his message by taking those words and saying those words are silly. The reality is those words are judgment. They're not silly at all. They are terrifying. Where I am, you cannot come. Unbelief kills people. Unbelief sends people to hell. Unbelief is such that you cannot get to God if you say, I'm not going to believe him. This message of trying to get to him but unable to because of your unbelief is all over the Bible. Genesis 6, uh, all the way early as Genesis 6, my spirit, God says, will not strive with man forever. There's a time for repentance and there's a time when that's impossible. Psalm 32, seek the Lord while he may be found. Submit to him now before it's too late. The Pharisees could, and we're going to see Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they're finally going to submit and surrender and repent. But here's the reality of the judgment that that Jesus is proclaiming over unbelief. Hell is not a place where Christ is forgotten. Hell is a place where Christ is unavailable. I want him, but I can't have him. I want to get to him. I want his mercy. I want his grace, but I can't have it because I died in my unbelief. So Jesus says, believe. That's why he's going to move on to say, believe. Don't be like the Pharisees in their unbelief. You must believe. Verse 37. This leads us to the offer. So we have the confusion of the crowds. We have the unbelief of the Pharisees, verses 32 through 36. Now the offer of Jesus. Just very simply, verses 37 through 39. This is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. The offer of Jesus is simply come and be satisfied. Verse 37, now on the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast. So they've gone through the day. This is probably the day after verse 36. They've gone through this whole day, the last day of the feast. Feast of Tabernacles, Leviticus 23. It's a remembrance of how God provided for the uh, people of Israel while they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, they would make tents, little tents, uh, and then they, would, um, they weren't permanent, so they would just uh, close them up and move around as they wandered in the wilderness. So the Feast of Tabernacles was designed to be a remembrance of that. So they would actually make tents. They would make tents in Jesus' day and 
Um, they would establish these little tents. It was a joyous celebration. They would even do this. The religious leaders said, hey, if God says we should make tents, let's make tents everywhere. So they made a tent that fit over the altar right next, right next to the temple. And on the last day of the feast, the high priest would take a golden pitcher and would walk from the altar down to the pool of Siloam, dip the, wa- uh, the pitcher, the golden pitcher into the water, bring it back up and pour it out over the altar. It, it was a remembrance of how God had provided water from the rock in the wilderness wanderings. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3 was recited when they would pour the water, as was Isaiah 58, 11. Isaiah 12, verse 3, therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. They would recite that and they would pour the water on. Isaiah 58, 11, we'll get to that. Springs will come forth from you. It's what Jesus is going to say in verse uh, 38. It is at this moment that Jesus stands up and cries out. So you have to picture the scene. You have over 400,000 people on the Temple Mount, crowded around the temple, crowded around the altar. And they would, on the last day of the feast, as the priest would come up the steps with the pitcher, with the golden pitcher of water from the Pool of Siloam, as they would come, they'd make way for him, and he'd stand over the, the altar, and he'd start pouring out, reciting the prayers, reciting the verses, and everybody would scream in elation. They would also walk around the altar seven times, this ginormous circle of crowded people just hanging out. And they reminded themselves, they would do that seven times to remind themselves of Jericho. Walking around the seven times around the walls of Jericho, they fell over. It's all a joyous feast remembering God's miraculous provision. There was never a lull in this moment. And that's why Jesus is going to cry out yet again. I don't know exactly the timing. But Josephus tells us that as the high priest would pour water on the altar, as it would splash in the altar and it would go over the, the, the walls of the altar and, and uh, just trickle down, that the Jewish people thought that there was something magical or powerful in that water and they would bend over and they would try and lap it up. They would either lick it themselves or they'd try to get a hand underneath it and cup it and drink it. And I believe it's at that moment that as Jesus is watching all of these Uh, Jewish people falling on their faces before this water, that he stands up. Maybe he stands up by where the high priest is. All that is needed to be known here is that he takes over the temple in one of the most poignant moments of the temple in the entire year. He does it again with the cleansing of the temple. He takes it over, and as people are trying to lap up water that's on the rocks of the altar... He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit uh, was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Uh, this, This is a sermon in and of itself. So we need to just slow down here. Just ask simple questions. Five questions. What does it mean to be thirsty? What does coming to drink mean? What's the river that's coming out of the heart? What's the reference to the Spirit coming after Jesus being glorified? And where was this even prophesied in the Old Testament? And why does that matter? So we're going to go through each one of these. Simple observations, simple interpretations, and we will apply these things to our lives.
Number one, what does it mean to thirst? This is his offer. His offer is being given to anyone who is thirsty. By the way, anyone. Who is he speaking to right now? He's speaking to the very people that said, you're crazy, we want to seize you, we want to kill you. He's speaking to his enemies. And the fact that Jesus is speaking these very words to his enemies, an offer of salvation and everlasting life and satisfaction to his enemies is what should make us want to want him. I believe that these words are the words that the officers in verse 46 are referring to. Never has a man spoken the way that this man speaks. He just said something and to somebody in a way we've never seen. He's loving his enemies. He's offering his enemies joy. So what does it mean to be thirsty? What does it mean? Well, very simply, it means that there is free water. If anyone's thirsty, let him come. Not payment. Don't work for the water. You don't have to dig a well. You don't have to dig for you know, a spring or a geyser. It's just simply, are you thirsty? Isaiah 55, verse 1. If anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink. If anyone's hungry, let him purchase food with money he never even had. So, the human soul has thirsts. The human soul has thirsts. If you are thirsty, which means our soul has thirsts. Obviously, Jesus is not speaking physically, literally about, come to me and I'll give you a glass of water or a cool Gatorade. That's not what he's saying. This is spiritual. So spiritually, we have souls that are thirsty. If your body physically goes without water, it gets thirsty. If your soul physically, in a spiritual sense, so physically, if your body uh, doesn't have water, you get thirsty. If your soul spiritually doesn't have God, it gets thirsty. The reality is this is pointing to the fact that we were made for God. Our souls were made to be satisfied by God alone. And I personally believe this is the most important thing that you could ever know about yourself. There's a lot of important things you can know about God that you need to know. But about yourself, I think the most important thing that you need to know about yourself, above all things that you could know about yourself, is that you were made with a soul that was made to be satisfied by God alone. Some people would say, I think the most important thing for you to know is that you're a sinner. That's on top. I'm talking about the foundation. You were, you were made to be satisfied by God. So what is sin? Sin is when you're trying to be satisfied by anything that's not God. So go a little bit deeper and realize, I believe the most important thing that you could know today is that your soul was made to be satisfied by God. Are you thirsty? Notice, that's the only qualification to come and to be satisfied. Are you thirsty? Will you come and will you drink? Just, that's it. There's no other qualification. Are you thirsty? Will you come and will you drink? This is why every true Bible teacher and Bible preacher preaches. Because I know how desperately thirsty I am. And I know how desperately thirsty you are. And everything that I do in my life, I do with the aim of satisfying my soul with Christ and helping you satisfy your soul with Christ. That's why I do what I do. That is my entire goal in life. Every time I read the Bible, every time I hang out with my family, every time I worship through song or worship through giving of tithes and offerings or worship by just reading God's word, everything that I do is done to awaken affections for Jesus. I want to love him more because my soul is thirsty and is trying to find satisfaction in other things. I want to drink deeply from Jesus and from nothing else. Number two. So what does it mean to be thirsty? Number two. What does it mean to 
come and drink. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come. So universal offer because everyone is thirsty. They just don't admit it. They don't see it. They don't know it. Let him come to me and drink. What does it mean to come and drink? Number one, it means that Jesus is what we drink. Come to me and drink from me, of me. It's not come to me and I will give you something to drink. It's come to me and there's nothing else that you need. Once you have me, you will be satisfied. Jesus is the living water. He doesn't just give us living water. He is living water. He is the bread of life. He doesn't just give us bread. And this also means that our souls can drink. That's why we sang all the songs we sang this morning. Bless the Lord, O my soul. My soul can praise God. Your soul can sing. I don't know if you've ever sung How Great Thou Art and thought about that that first line in the chorus. Then sings my soul, as opposed to my lips. This is so deep that I can't even express. I, I don't know if you've been in those moments. We had a couple of those moments just even this last week at the Shepherds Conference where the, the worship through song is so awe-bringing, so satisfaction and affection awakening that you just can't even sing. You try to open your mouth and it just comes out like a you know, squirrel being stepped on. You can't even figure out how to form words. And so there was a moment as I was thinking about this message at Shepherds Conference, there was a moment that I just stood there and I said, God... I can't speak. I can't sing. I'm saying this in my heart. So I'm just going to let my soul sing. Then sings my soul. And I want my soul to sing as purely as it possibly can. So I'm standing there and maybe somebody's looking at me going, why isn't that guy singing? Oh, I'm singing. My soul is singing. Your soul can drink. It can be satisfied. So what does it mean to come and to drink? Well, Jesus says it, verse 38. He who believes in me. As the scripture said, from the innermost being will flow rivers rivers of living water. So that's how we believe. Drinking, coming and drinking is believing. This goes all the way back to John chapter 6, verse 35. If anyone is hungry, let him come to me. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Believe in me. Saving faith, true salvation in Jesus Christ, is not simply knowing the facts about God or the facts about yourself. Oh, how many people know there is a God. They are sinners. They need salvation from somebody else other than them. They need cleansing from Jesus. He died on a cross to save them and he rose from the dead. Oh, how many people know that, but they aren't coming to drink. What does it mean to be saved, to believe? What does that mean? It means to come to Jesus and to say, you are everything that I live for. I've lived for sin. I repent. I turn and I live for you. I live to be satisfied by you. Remember, just in uh, juxtaposition to the brothers and the religious leaders, in the beginning part of chapter 7, they had pride and unbelief. They had pride. They wanted the glory and the praises of man. They didn't believe in Jesus because of that. And this is the exact opposite. Humility and belief. Saying, I, I have nothing. I come with nothing. I come to you to be satisfied. I have no means of satisfaction on my own. My sin, you unmask your sin and you realize it destroys, it kills, it will not satisfy. What is this river, number three? What is this river that's coming out of the heart? It says, he who believes in me, verse 38, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. What does this mean? Literally, it's uh, out of his belly or out of his heart or out of his soul, from his innermost parts. 
It means that Jesus will go to the deepest part of you and change the deepest part of you. You don't just get a single sip when you come to Jesus and he changes you from the inside out. You get a fountain. The river maker abides in your soul and you become a fountain of living water. Not only for yourself, now you are satisfied over and over and over, constantly, constantly. You never have to look anywhere else. You are, you are home. You don't have any stepping stones to get to satisfaction. You are satisfied. But also, once you have the river of living water inside of you, it flows out to others. You become a fountain to others. Uh, I just think so many of us drink deeply from Jesus but the, the pipes that go out to others to help others grow in their love for Jesus and others be awakened in their, their affections for Jesus, those pipes should be open. But I, I think because of sin, because of selfishness, because of laziness, because of unbelief, those pipes become jammed up. And so we get satisfied on Jesus and we fill up. And since there is no uh, extraction of that, we, we need like spiritual Drano to, to bust those pipes open and to get the rivers flowing again. But if that river isn't flowing through you to other people, number one, you're not doing your job as a believer. But number two, as it's not flowing through you, then you're going to feel pretty full very instantly when you drink deeply from Jesus. You're going to take a sip and I'm done because I didn't really give anything away. We can't be stagnant as rivers of living water. Jesus says, uh, verse 39, it's a description, it's an explanation that this is the spirit of What does that mean? What's the reference to the Spirit coming? This is the experience of the Spirit that couldn't really be understood by the disciples at this moment in time. It's the indwelling fellowship of the Spirit, of the risen and glorified Christ. This is why Jesus is going to say, it's good that I leave you. It's good that I go away. Why is it ever good that Jesus left? Because he says, if I don't leave, the helper won't come. And if the helper doesn't come, then you can't do all of these things and can't find your satisfaction the way that I'm speaking of. Very practically, the reason why it's good that Jesus left is Jesus was confined to a place in a body. He was in one place in one body. The Holy Spirit's not confined to that. Jesus right now, at this very moment, is in heaven. His spirit is here on earth, indwelling believers. Just turn over a couple chapters to chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Because I'm leaving right now, but he's going to be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. You know me, Jesus is saying, so you know him because he's going to abide in you and he's my spirit. Romans 8, chapter uh, chapter 8, verses 9 through 11 Jesus says, uh, Paul says that this is Jesus' spirit coming to us. He doesn't leave us by ourselves. Brothers and sisters, this is such good news. That Jesus didn't say, peace out, I did my work, and I'm gone. Jesus says, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to give you what you need to be satisfied, to obey, and to get to the finish line, to stay saved. That's why you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why believers don't have a place of worship. We don't have a place of worship in Israel or a, a, a mosque. or We don't have that because the Holy Spirit resides in you. You are the temple. 
Finally, last question, number five. Where was this ever prophesied? Can I just say the entire Old Testament? Um, As I was looking through passages, I found 32 verses. So we can't go to all 32 verses. You have to trust me on this one. There are so many verses in the Old Testament that describe the pouring out of, of rivers of living water of the Spirit coming to reside in his people. I'll just give you one. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. It's Isaiah 58, verse 11. This was also read during the pouring of the water. The Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters will never fail. So the Old Testament says God is planning a design that's purposed for your greatest satisfaction. Because I, I don't think it's a coincidence that we're going through gospel treason right now and we're going through John 6 and John 7. The, the spiritual stars are aligning for us on this. God is speaking directly to our greatest hopes and dreams and our greatest pains and fears. This passage is everything we're studying about idolatry. Do you realize that everything that you truly need to be satisfied and filled with joy is, is in Jesus Christ alone? Think through your life. And I know we've been doing this in our small groups, but just think through your life right now. What is it that is most depressing to you, most frustrating, most angering? What do you get most impatient about? What do you lose sleep over? Those are all idols that we need to destroy and smash and tear down like the Old Testament talks about. So let me give you some examples of how this works with this passage. I'll I'll use myself again. I think I've done this the last three sermons. An idol of respect. An idol of being appreciated. Man's approval. Wanting to be uh, seen for what I've done and acknowledged for what I've done. I have two options. When my heart wants that, I can either go to Jeremiah 2, broken cisterns, and I can say, Hannah, can you please tell me how amazing I am? I would never say that because that sounds terrible. Oh, but I say that. I say that in other ways. You ask questions of people hoping that they would say, oh, no, no, you're amazing. You're so I have, I have an option. I can go to broken cisterns that hold no water. I can go to man's approval and the praises of man and say, do you think I'm awesome? And it will satisfy me. Sin satisfies for a season and in the end it brings forth death. So it will satisfy me for a little while. It will satisfy me as long as I never do anything again. Because as soon as I do something else that goes unnoticed, I'm going to say, hey, I need more, I need more, I need more. I can go there, drink from broken cisterns, and just be a depressed, despondent, angry man. Because I'm never being satisfied. Why don't people notice? Why don't people understand? Why don't people appreciate? And I don't think that it would be wrong of me to say that I'm sure there are other people in this room. We have a lot of hardworking people. I'm sure there are a lot of hardworking people that feel the same way. Just notice. Just see. By the way, there's a a helpful 
evidence that this is in your heart when you talk about yourself as often as you can when you're hanging out with friends? Um, when you need to tell them how awful your life is so that you're saying, please just satisfy me. doesn't mean that you can't be honest. You know your heart. Actually, you don't really. God does, and the word will help rightly divide it. My other option is to say, the God of the universe sees everything I do. Revelation 2 and 3. I know your deeds. I see your toil. Toil, working to the point of exhaustion. God says, I see that. God sees it. And God commends those churches for their work, for their toil, for their labor. I see it. I can either go to man and say, you didn't see what I did, but, but I want you to know what I did so that you can, you know, pat on the back, good job, give me some applause. Broken cistern. Or I can lay in my bed after a hard day of work and I can say, God, you saw it all. And the majority of it was awful. And the majority of it was filled with sin. And you still love me anyway. And anything that I ever did in this day that was worthy of commendation was only by your grace. So thank you for grace. Now let me sleep, please. (laughs) I just want to sleep. And I want to wake up and I want to glorify you tomorrow. Living for the praise of the one who will say to you one day, well done, good and faithful servant. That will last for eternity. So I can either say, I want the praises of man that I can cling to for a moment and it will go away. Or I can say, I I get the praise of God. I get the commendation of God who says, well done, good and faithful servant for all of eternity. I'll take that. That is why the Bible says, work heartily as unto the Lord, pleasing God, not man. Please God, not man. You can do this for whatever idol you might be struggling with. Maybe you have an idol of being loved, being cherished by someone. You never really feel like you get the love that you deserve or you're craving, so you get angry. Or maybe you pursue lustful passions. You're thirsty. You're going after broken cisterns. Go to the fountain of living water. Go to the one who loves you. Not necessarily because of you, but in spite of your sin and says, I will cherish you no matter what. Go to the one who has promised that his love for you will never be separated or die. Go to that one. If you go to the love of man to be satisfied, that love is temporal. It's fleeting. It's failing. It will die. It will, it will dis- disappoint you. It's one of the things that my wife and I say to engaged couples or premarital counseling or you you will be disappointed in marriage because you were never meant to be satisfied by your spouse. And if you try to be satisfied ultimately by your spouse, you're going to hate your spouse because they're never going to fulfill your ultimate satisfactions and those desires that you have. So run to Jesus and say, I just need his love. And since I already have it, I don't need the love of anyone else. I don't. I don't need it. It could be health, just trying to get well. It could be money. It could be greed. Go to the great physician. Go to the one who knows every need that you have and will supply it in Christ Jesus. I can promise you, every single thing that you struggle with, it's because you and I do not live this verse out. Everything. So, Jeremiah chapter 2 Instead of drinking off of the rocks and the dirt that's in a broken cistern, go to the fountain of living water. Be thirsty, come to me, and drink. 
since this was prophesied in the Old Testament, the beauty of that is God has planned this for you so that you would be satisfied in him. And he made that plan final by crushing his son on the cross and raising him from the dead. Thirst, come drink. That, those are the three qualifications to be able to have everlasting joy and satisfaction. That's it. Are you thirsty? All you have to do is admit that because you already are. I know you are. Will you come and will you drink? Those, we've talked before earlier in, in the Gospel of John about the, the Latin phrases that were used by early church fathers, notitia, fiducia, and ascensus. That saving faith has inside of it notitia, which is knowledge, fiducia, which is faith, knowing something about God, believing that it's true, but you have to have a census, which is a commitment to those things that you will ultimately live according to those truths. Knowing and believing is not enough. You have to let the belief turn to actions. James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. I think that you could put those in here. Thirsting is notitia. It's knowing who God is and who you are. You are thirsty before God, laid bare before him. Fiducia is faith. Fiducia is coming, saying you can satisfy. I know that about you, and so I'm going to start coming to you. And a census is drinking, committing your life. I will drink from you and no other fountain. That's what it means. So, how will people respond to this? How will they respond? Verse 40. Let's go down to verse 40. This is the response to Jesus' offer. How will they respond? How will you respond to this offer? First response, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 18, the prophet that was going to come, sent by God, not, not Messiah, not God, God, very God. You could put kind of a good teacher. This is a great guy. I like his words. I'll listen to him. This is a good teacher. That's one response. Verse 41. Others were saying this is the Christ. It's the right response. Still others, verse 41, were saying surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? This is unbelief. Because they're going to say he's not coming from Galilee. Has not the scripture, verse 42, said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? This is maybe more confusion than unbelief. There's unbelief underneath it, but this is confusion again because of the religious leaders. They've done a bad job of declaring who Jesus is. Any way that they get to discredit his ministry, they will. And so they say, he was born in Galilee. No, he wasn't. He was born in Bethlehem. Verse 42 is totally true. The Messiah has to come from Bethlehem. But that was a hidden fact because of the religious leaders and because of the confusion of the people. So a division occurs in the crowd because of him. Verse 44, some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Again, they can't. It's not his time. So the officers then come to the chief priests and the Pharisees. This is the fourth. So you have, he's a good teacher. You have, I believe he is who he says, to, says he is. You have confusion. I don't know what to do with this guy. And then you have pure unbelief. Verse 45, why did you not bring him? I love this. Verse 46, the officers could have answered anything. They could have answered anything. Why didn't you bring him? We gave you a command. It was a simple command. Go seize that guy. He has no sword on him. He has no weapons. He has no defensive system. Just take him. They could have answered, the crowd was massive. They could have answered, his disciples scared us. 
They could have answered, we were afraid that the crowds would do something against us. They seemed like him. They were going to riot. They could have answered any way they wanted. And they answer this. Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. It's his words. This is why we read the Bible. We teach the Bible. We preach the Bible. We study the Bible. It's his words. They were sent to arrest Jesus. And Jesus' words arrested their hearts in a way that they couldn't do their own job. So the Pharisees say, you haven't also been led astray, have you? Led astray. Believing him thinking that his words are amazing. That's being led astray. Verse 48, not one of the rulers or the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? That's not true because Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, we don't know where Nicodemus is at this point. Seems like he's close to salvation. Maybe he is. Probably not yet, but he will be saved at the end of this gospel. It says, verse 49, but this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Pharisees and their unbelief are saying, we're the only ones who know right about this guy and everybody else is just flat out stupid. This is what legalism and pride does to you. Legalism and pride says, I'm right in everything. Why can't you all figure that out? That's what the Pharisees are saying. Nicodemus comes, that's the one that we saw in John 3, and says, our law doesn't judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? So we have to at least give him a fair trial. And they say, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. We use the phrase often, sin makes you stupid. Their sin made them so stupid that they forgot Jonah, Nahum, and Hosea all came from Galilee. Three of their favorite prophets that they killed, by the way. But three of their favorite prophets in their Torah, in their, in their law, in the prophets, in their uh, books... And they don't remember that. They are so furious with hatred against Jesus and unbelief against him that they say, we don't even have prophets that come from Galilee, even though they do. That's why I think Jesus' words arrested the officers. Because Jesus was speaking to them, would you come? Would you come? Remember how many times Jesus said, um, oh, how it was at the end of Passion Week or middle of Passion Week, Oh, how often I wanted to gather Israel under my wings like a, a, a mother hen gathers the baby chicks, but they were not willing. This is one of those times. Come, let me gather you under my, let me protect you from the wrath of God. Let me give you everything that you need. And they will not come. So my question to you is, what is your response? What is your response to Jesus? Will you respond as countless people do? Oh, he's a great teacher. I was talking with a guy at Starbucks uh, this week. Great place to go talk to people. Uh, just a bunch of crazy hipsters hanging out, uh, philosophizing about the world. Um, I could say that because I go there, so I can just I enjoy it. And they'll talk to you about pretty much anything. I ask them about Jesus. I ask them about uh, they saw me reading the Bible, and I said, what do you think about him? Long story short, they said, oh, I think, you know, he's a great teacher. Taught a lot about love, taught a lot about peace, loving your enemies. I think he's a great teacher. And I asked, do you believe that he's God? No, that, that's a pretty big claim. You know, I don't think he's God. He's a great guy, though. He's a great teacher. So I was just able to go through the scriptures with them and, and ask them this very simple question. 
based on the claims that Jesus teaches, can you believe that he's a good teacher without being God? He makes some crazy claims. Uh, let me give you a couple. John thirteen nineteen. Jesus claims to be God. He claims to be God, so he taught that I am God. John eight fifty eight. He claimed to exist before the world was even created, so eternally existent. John chapter ten verse eleven. He came, he claims to come into the world as a shepherd to die for his sheep. John fourteen six. He claims to be the only way to God. People are fine with Jesus being a great teacher and a loving guy and a, 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 a hippie prophet who preaches peace. They're fine with that. Jesus only becomes offensive when he says, there is no other way to get to the Father except through me. Jesus claims to be the bread and water that grant eternal life. John 6.35 and John 4.14. Jesus claims that we can do nothing without him. John 15.1 and Verse 5, Jesus claims to raise people from the dead, John 11 and John 6. Jesus claims to be the supreme glory that will satisfy us forever, John 17, 24. Jesus claims to own everything that the Father owned. I love this one. Go to John chapter 17, verse 10. I just want you to see this. Jesus praying, high priestly prayer, all things that are mine are yours. He's praying to the Father. Father, everything that I have is yours. You and I can pray that prayer. Everything that we have is God's. And then he says, and everything that you have is mine. (laughs) We can't pray that prayer. If you pray that prayer, you're in deep trouble. He says, everything that I have is yours. And everything that you have, Father, is mine. Jesus claims to own everything that the Father owns. So I walk through this with this guy at Starbucks and I say, do you believe that Jesus is a good teacher? And the guy said, yeah, I said, you don't believe that he's God. I said, do you realize that it is irrational to believe that Jesus is a good teacher while not believing he's God? Look at these claims. He claimed to be God. So if he's a good teacher and he says, I'm God, he can't be a good teacher if he's not God. And this gentleman said, his first word in response was, wow. I never thought about that. And I said, I never thought about that until I started reading the Bible. That's the reason why you never thought about it, because you probably hadn't heard these claims, right? Yep, I hadn't heard those claims. So I gave him a Bible, and I said, just read John. Read the claims of Jesus. He cannot be a good teacher if he's not God, because he claimed to be God. This is, uh, many of you probably know, this is from Mere Christianity. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must never say. A man who said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he never intended to. So there are some that respond by saying he's a good teacher. Wrong. Some by saying he's not the Messiah or the Son of God. Wrong. There are some who say, I have no idea, and they're on the fence. 
And I would just plead with you, if you're on the fence about Jesus, let's study the Word of God together. Let's study His claims. Let's press into His claims because this is the most important decision that you will ever be faced with. What will you do with Jesus? Some will flat out say, I will not believe Him like the Pharisees. And some like Nicodemus and the officers will say, His words, no one ever spoke those words before. We've got to do something about it. I believe some of the officers will be saved. We know Nicodemus gets saved. What are we to do with this? The, the confusion of the crowds, the unbelief of the Pharisees, the offer that Jesus has made and the response to that offer. My question is, who would you be in that, in that picture, in that narrative? What have you done with Jesus? Where in your life are you still seeking satisfaction apart from Jesus? And will you this day come before the fountain of living water and say, my journey has ended, my quest is over, everlasting joy is found in no one but Jesus, and I submit myself to him and to him alone. Drink deeply from him today, and you will find those rivers flowing from you to everlasting life. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the... the, practical responses of these uh, groups in John 7. Oh, how often we respond by saying, you're a great guy, but not God. We'd never say that with our words, but oh, how we say it with our life. So God, this morning, may we submit to you. And ultimately, God, I, I praise you for Jesus because the way that he became the living water for us is by becoming a curse for us on the cross so that we could forever be blessed. The one who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him and be treated and blessed as if we lived lives of perfect obedience. So we thank you for the cross, the source of that everlasting fountain. And we drink deeply from it right now.